Three years ago, it took three tries to restart my heart. I had had surgery to repair a faulty valve. I was born with a, a valve that wasn't quite right, and they had to go in and sew it together again. I had arranged with Dawn, our former pastor, the interim pastor, to return from her bike trip in case I died. But I didn't, evidently. Weeks before the operation, Edna would send me notes of encouragement with squirrels and small animals saying that God held my heart in his hands. After the operation, the Martins visited me, but I was in such a fog I didn't remember it. Marilyn had to tell me about it, but it meant a lot to me to know that someone from the church had visited. I felt connected to the body of believers, to you here at East Chestnut Street, just as Edna's cards had encouraged me and so many other people had encouraged me. I slowly recovered, walking an extra five minutes each day so I could finally walk to the end of the, the, um, the block and further until I got close to being normal again. Uh, the doctor told me that for every hour I was in anesthesia, I could expect uh, a month or two of mental recovery, and I've extended that to years um, my body was failing and it had needed a repair and a slow healing in the care of the church community. I still do feel like I'm mentally slower than before the surgery, but I have had a rest and I'm healing because God heals all of us and all of his creation. In Leviticus, we read about God's desire for Jubilee, a sabbatical year for business as well as crops. Uh, Israel was supposed to, every seven years, give, give the land a break, and every 50 years return everything. Uh, clearly, in our capitalist society, we we have trouble imagining that, and I think they did as well. Next. In, in Chronicles, we see the, the, the result of that, um, what we just heard, that they were sent into exile, and the land was given its sabbatical rest, for the 70 years that had been missed. You get it right? Okay. Um, next. And then in Luke 4, we hear Jesus telling us that the sabbatical year is back again, that we are in the Jubilee year and we, are, we can celebrate. So we see the continuity of that through all of Scripture. But it doesn't just apply to business and economic things, as we saw, but also to healing in every way, and healing of the land, just as it does in Second Chronicles. So let's look next um, at, at a sabbatical today. In 1859, let me see where I, oh, go ahead. There we go. Oh, okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, in 1859, the first oil well was drilled in Titusville. There he is. Uh, soon everyone was drilling wells in the region. Uh, in 1865, a nearby farm was the site of a new find named for a crack in the ground thought to be a portal to hell because it smelled so bad. It was called Pit Hole. This is before people thought about PR. <laughs> imagine trying to sell that today. And imagine trying to promote the Chase House as the finest hotel in Pit Hole. Within nine months, the empty field had become a city of 15,000. Here's what it looked like in 1865. 
It was covered in spilled oil and raw sewage. No one ever talks about the sewage, but it had to be there. These are big tanks of oil. They would put them in barrels and take them by horseback to Titusville until that became untenable, and then they built the first pipeline, which blew up several times. It became the third, uh, go ahead to the next one. It became the third biggest post office in Pennsylvania as everyone tried to do business there. It was behind Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Celebrities stayed there. John Wilkes Booth gave up his acting career and decided to invest in oil wells, including one in Pithole. When it didn't make money, he quit and went to Washington, D.C. and assassinated Lincoln. Two months after the assassination, his, his well hid oil, and the people who had invested made a fortune. I think next. You can see that every inch was drilled. One more. But by 1867, the whole boomtown collapsed. It had lasted 500 days and then had completely destroyed the site environmentally. The greedy landowner who had originally owned the land never sold it, only leased it. So when the economy turned, building owners just dismantled their buildings and left town, and the town completely vanished from the face of the earth. Next. Today it looks like this. And one more. After 150 years, there's really nothing to see when you go there. As part of my job as state geologist, and I have to give Maryland 25 cents because I said that. Um, <laughs> I flew the entire state with LIDAR, which is a laser which tells exactly the elevation of the, every square meter of the state, down to within an inch. So next. When you look at pit hole, this is what it looks like, and then one more. Oh, that's color infrared, but we won't go into that. And that's the LIDAR. Go on more. When you look at the LIDAR, you can still see the foundations of the houses. The land has had its rest, but it's not fully healed. The land deserves all the sabbaticals owed to it. As I work at DEP now, I see the many ways we put money above the creation and damage what we do to the gift of creation. For instance, today we're awaiting a slug of gasoline that's coming down the Susquehanna River to the intake for the water supply for Lancaster. Next. When I see that damage, I remember that God provides a sabbatical even when we have not. Well, an interesting feature of theme-based worship service series that the speakers are a bit freer to choose which scripture passage to base their meditations on. I chose the familiar Philippians passage, not so much of the encouragement I felt from it. To the contrary, it's a passage that I struggle with very much. Like so many scripture verses, it can be misused by those who seek to give simplistic Bible-based advice to people who are struggling with some type of affliction or problem. In some ways, this passage is the perfect, tidy response to someone who is struggling with depression and anxiety. On the surface, it makes sense. When one is feeling lonely or blue or discouraged, 
Research, though, shows that a positive, thankful attitude is an effective tool to dispel the clouds of sadness and feel the sunshine of happiness again. Unfortunately, the fix is not always that easy because the problem is often deeper than simply being temporarily discouraged or disappointed. By way of background to anyone who is visiting today or who does not know, I have struggled for many years with anxiety and depression in varying degrees of severity. Because of a perfect storm of factors earlier this year, the affliction was severe enough that it landed me in a mental health facility for inpatient treatment. My healing journey since then has been mostly to deconstruct what caused that to happen and to work to the best of my ability to make sure that it does not happen again. And only time will tell if I'm successful. Aside from whatever lingering social stigma there stigmas there are about mental health problems like depression, mental health symptoms are hard to discuss as they are being experienced. And that is because a person's mental state at any given time is the lens through which he or she understands and tries to fix the problems that need to be fixed. That's a complicated sentence. <laughs> I'll say it again because I think it's important. Mental health problems are hard to discuss as they are being experienced because a person's mental state at any given time is the lens through which he or she understands and tries to fix the problems that need to be faced. It's a circular, mysterious, catch-22 kind of situation. How does one describe and fix a problem like anxiety and or depression, which depends on good judgment and a realistic view of what is causing the problem, when mental illness, by definition, destroys good judgment and tends to make the victim view his or her circumstances in completely unrealistic ways. For example, if I have a pain in my back, which right now I do, <laughs> I can say to myself and everyone around me that I have a pain in my back. I then try to use good judgment to find some sort of remedy which I then apply to the problem. Hopefully, the problem is then fixed and I can move on without a pain in my back. The point is that I can make a realistic assessment about what is wrong with me because the pain in my back does not affect my judgment about what it takes to make my back feel better. On the other hand, if I experience a depression so deep that the simple act of getting out of a chair and tying my shoes becomes impossibly difficult, which has happened to me, it is obvious to my rational self that something is very wrong. But under those circumstances, I have neither the energy nor the will to make the effort to try to fix the problem. If I can't muster the mental energy to tie my shoes, how can I possibly muster the energy to fix what is wrong with my mind? So all of this brings me back to the Philippians passage. Not long ago, I met with a good friend from a former job who also struggles with depression and anxiety. He spent a lot of time talking about the, his experiences with various therapists and their approaches and methodologies. He was very clear that his worst experience was with a therapist who acted as though depression can be effectively managed by a kind of rejoiced in the Lord, positive thinking, or thankfulness approach. The crux of the therapy was simply to let your mind dwell on the good things around you, the parts of life that are praiseworthy noble and pure, 
just as the verses admonish us to do. Then the peace of God will come and provide the sought-after healing. I don't mean to suggest that there isn't a lot of truth in that statement that positive thoughts promote mental health and wholeness. That strategy has certainly been a big part of my healing process. But my experience has been that the causes of depression can be so deep that this type of thankfulness cure approach does not go nearly far enough to touch whatever biochemical imbalance or trauma is causing the underlying problem. To suggest to a person who is experiencing severe depression that he or she should simply dwell on joyful, healing thoughts for a pathway to healing is a bit like suggesting to a paralyzed person that the cure for his or her paralysis is simply to get up from his or her wheelchair and walk. After all, what could be easier than standing up and walking? So my advice to anyone who is relating to someone with depression is not to minimize the severity of the condition by offering a simple thankfulness cure. There are appropriate times and places to sell someone to rejoice in the Lord. Walking with someone who is dealing with severe depression is not one of those times. So then where does the healing come from? Well, I'm not a therapist. It probably varies from person to person. For some people, the root cause is some kind of past severe trauma. But I have not experienced the kind of trauma that would trigger depression. For me, there is clearly a genetic and biochemical root to the problem. Several of my recent ancestors exhibited severe undiagnosed depressive symptoms off and on during their lifetimes. So for me, the primary cure has been pharmaceutical. I take medication that alters my brain chemistry so that I am able to perceive things more accurately. I also work with a professional counselor who offers suggestions as to how to self-evaluate my thought patterns to prevent misperceptions. Based on some reading I did, I have fostered a range of personal relationships outside of my familiar circle of friends with people who are very different from me. It is very hard to describe, but conversations with those individuals make me more aware of my own negative biases and assumptions, which helps keep me aware of my thought patterns and to keep them in a healthy way. Finally, I try to avoid the kinds of situations and stresses that can trigger the kind of thought patterns and behaviors that tend to spiral into depression and anxiety. As long as the other self-care processes are in place, routine stressors are not a problem, and they don't knock me off my game. I'd also like to clarify that mental illness and physical illness are similar in not many ways, but in most ways. Depending on who we are, how we live, and how our unique genetic heritage affects each of us, we can be prone to all sorts of physical problems. To address and to prevent physical problems, there are a variety of potential cures. Medication, diet, non-traditional therapies, any number of different ways that uh, cures that can be applied. The same is true for mental illness. There are a variety of therapies that can be tested and applied and which vary in success between individuals. The success of the therapies depends on the symptoms, the individual, and the underlying cause of the illness. I believe the discomfort about mental illness comes from what is still unknown about it, including the sometimes destructive and odd behaviors it causes, along with the ongoing mysteries about the relationship between physical brain activity, consciousness, 
and self-awareness, and how external factors like physical health, spiritual health, and relationships affect our mental well-being. I would go further to say that just as there are people who are fully cured of physical illnesses, there are those who are fully cured of mental illnesses. I strenuously disagree with anyone who believes that a long-ago bout of mental illness and perhaps even intensive treatment or hospitalization somehow automatically marks that individual as having an ongoing risk of continued mental illness now and in the future. Again, I believe it works the same as physical illness. Cancer, cancers go into a remission, surgeries correct congenital heart defects, and ongoing medication controls high blood pressure and other chronic conditions. So as for myself, I'm, I'm doing okay right now. All my therapies are in place and I seem to be doing well. I don't mind if anyone asks how I'm feeling. I'll give you an honest answer. As Naomi will attest, wintertime is not a good time for me in general, so I need to be a bit more careful during the next few months. As for now, I can in fact rejoice in the Lord, not be too anxious, and I'm able to dwell on that which is honorable, just, pleasing, commendable, and praiseworthy without too much effort. And I rejoice in the fact that I belong to a body of believers who care about each other, who show compassion and selfless love to those who are struggling with whatever stands in the way of living full and joyful lives. When we set off on a journey, we typically know the destination and plan the route. In life, we're on a journey and, rec and can recount where we've been, but we don't really know what is ahead. Each day, we step out in faith, open to what lies in front of us. There are two images I would like to share in relation to healing this morning. One is the raging sea that we just heard about, and the other is an empty bowl and the hands that hold it. Both help to explain my journey with healing over the past year. Close your eyes with me and imagine that you are on the boat with the disciples and Jesus. What starts out as a journey across the sea to your next destination with Jesus turns into something quite different. The winds pick up, waves are steadily increasing, and the boat is being overtaken by water. Water is everywhere. The boat is rising and falling on the crashing waves, tossed by the windstorm. Think about the storm and yourself in the boat with the disciples and Jesus. What are you feeling? During all this, Jesus is sleeping. The disciples wake him with loud cries, Lord, save us, we are perishing. Jesus responds, why are you afraid, you of little faith? He rebukes the winds and the sea, and there is calm. They are amazed, wondering who this, who this Jesus is, that even the winds and the sea obey him. So we are all on a journey of healing. For each of us, healing takes a different path than we may anticipate. And sometimes healing is far off or non-existent. And it can take a very long time. 
Many of you, as many of you know, last fall, what started as a cold turned into an asthma exacerbation that wouldn't go away. The illness resulted in many sleepless nights, persistent coughing, and difficulty breathing. The allergists, pulmonologists, and other specialists that I saw couldn't determine why my lungs were acting the way they did. I took a variety of medications, used a nebulizer four times a day, had many tests but no conclusive results. By January, due to too many weeks on high doses of prednisone, I ended up in the hospital with a high fever and what turned out to be PCP pneumonia and another bacterial infection, um, which are usually seen in HIV patients whose immune systems are compromised. While there, I was tested for immunoglobulin antibody levels and learned that my antibodies were low in three of the four subclasses, and I had no idea there even were subclasses of IgG. This led to an appointment at the Lancaster Cancer Center with a hematologist who started me on the four to five hour antibody infusions that I have received ever since. At that time, once every three to four weeks for several months, Side effects from the infusions included swollen feet and ankles, loss of hair, and joint pain. At the Lancaster Cancer Center, where I continue to go, I am deeply aware of the care offered by nurses, doctors, and technicians to people whose lives are in the balance. It was incredibly challenging to see my body reacting as it did during all, the, all of these months. An illness that started in September began to be cleared up by May. After several months of te uh, antibody testing this summer, the levels began to dip again, and I started on infusions again. I'm now in the middle of a series of five, uh, once a month, with two to go. Then uh, after that, it will be tested once a month again to see if um, the levels drop again. I don't have a diagnosis. It's just that my antibody levels seem to be low enough that they don't fight infection well. Side effects um, this time are fewer, but joint pain remains, and my lungs are clear, for which I'm grateful. I may need these treatments for the rest of my life. Two other experiences unfolded last year alongside this illness. One was our ongoing discernment process here at church, and the other was participating in a nine-month Ignatian spiritual retreat, the retreat for everyday life, with my spiritual director. I now see these three experiences coming together in ways that I could not have planned or imagined. Each contributed to a deeper understanding of God and of myself, our community and the world, and to healing. There were many times last year when I felt I was in the middle of the raging sea. It wasn't just that Jesus was asleep on the boat. He wasn't in the boat at all. I felt so far away from God's healing presence that I was taking on water and the boat was sinking. There were times that I moaned and cried. Out to God, Lord, save me. I am sinking. The other image 
is the empty bowl. I learned in my spiritual direction this year that monks use a tradition at the beginning of each day of using an empty bowl in their open hands, like this. In this simple act of humility and vulnerability, they're letting go of the day before, trusting that they will receive what is needed for the new day. Beginning the day with open hands, they open themselves to whatever God may bring, not knowing what the day will hold, but anticipating that God will be present. This open-handed and hopeful beginning to each day has helped me now, much later, to consider how God's healing and loving presence has been close by in the hands of the many people who have helped me heal. I'm very grateful for the hands of the monks holding the empty bowl who model a way to be open to God, to whatever God may bring in any day. To the knowledgeable and persistent doctors who continue to seek out causes of disease even when no answer can be found. To researchers, microbiologists, and technicians who create the right mix of human plasma and synthetic substances that become the infusion medication Gamunex, which is what I have, what I take, and the healing medical solutions that will come after that. I am grateful to plasma donors, those who donate their plasma at centers around the country, as well as those who sell their plasma for whatever reason. And I have begun to pray for them with thanks and hope for healing in their lives. For the UPS driver who brings much-needed chemotherapy medications and antibodies at the right temperatures to the Lancaster Cancer Center. To the nurse who inserts the IV into my hand, provides the Tylenol, Benadryl, and steroid at the beginning of each treatment, and who offers a warm blanket and caring presence. To the hematologist who reaches forward to give each patient a hug at the beginning and the ending of their appointment. The strong praying hands of so many people who have prayed for my healing and the healing of others over so long a time here in this congregation. The loving, walking alongside hands of Jay who patiently helped me heal. The hands of my children and other family members and friends. East Chestnut Street members who sent care packages, cards, emails, food, books, and chocolate to help me through my infusions. Their presence in times when no answers could be found. The wise hands of those who pointed the way to wisdom through the ages, through poetry, women's words, God's presence in scripture and song. This is what love looks like and how healing happens, and I'm grateful. I don't know why the seas rage at some points in our lives, but I have learned that during times of challenge and distress, God is present. Excuse me. God discloses more of God's self to us and more of our own true selves, our souls, to us. We are shaped and transformed. With open hands, we can turn to Jesus who leads us and helps us prepare to be amazed by God's work. God is present in the boat in the raging sea, and God is present in the empty bowl. Please join me in a closing prayer I wrote based on a psalm 
that I prayed during my illness last year. If you'd like to hold your hands as if you're holding an empty bowl as we pray. Mothering God of the earth's foundations, God of light, the mountain goats, the soaring hawks, and we of small account. We lay what we are holding before you. We can no longer carry it. Lord, help us to be brave, to be loving, kind, a wise presence for others. Help us to listen, to hear, and to embrace in our brokenness. Help us to see and be amazed by what you will do in the raging sea and in the empty bowl. Amen.